You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Anne Rice. Her latest novel is The Wolves of Midwinter and Christopher Rice. Her son, his latest novel is The Heavens Rise. Thank you for joining me, Anne and Chris. Delighted to be here. Wonderful to be here. Anne and Chris, you guys have uh, been in California for most, if not all, of your writing lives. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how the feeling of being in California has affected your writing styles and your writing content. Wow. It's 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 hard to. I'm so close to it. It's it's hard to say. Um, I came here as a young woman to um, live in a place where ideas originated, and in the excitement of a cultural capital like San Francisco or Los Angeles, um, rather than say to be in a part of the country where lifestyles tended to evolve and be inherited, and I guess that's influenced everything from my desire to be a writer to my belief that I could be one to my feeling that I could re- write anything I wanted, including a novel set in the 19th century in which every character was a vampire. You know, it's sort of a postmodern sensibility to that. And since I was here, <clears throat> where individuality matters more than anything else, I felt free to do it. Chris? I was called to Southern California by the lure of Hollywood, you know, after we had moved to the South. I was born here in Northern California, and we left when I was about 10 years old. And I always had a desire to come back. And what happened for me is, well, there's my writing before I read Ross MacDonald, and there's my writing after I read Ross MacDonald. And I read Ross MacDonald at the recommendation of Mom. And I was very warmly welcomed by a community of mystery writers in Southern California pretty soon after I got there. And, and they sat me down and they said, OK, here, here's who you need to read. And it was Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, and Ross MacDonald. I'm sorry to say there, there aren't any women on the list that these writers gave me, but that's just the nature of the list. And what I found very quickly was that while you know the mainstream is very enamored with Raymond Chandler and with his style, the writers that I know are enamored with Ross McDonald and with his clarity and with his precision and his psychological insight, specifically that he brought to his later work. And I sometimes worry, particularly in Southern California, that murder is the only thing we all have in common. You know, that it's such a, a sprawling, diverse, diffuse landscape. The only thing the news can get us to gather over are high-profile murder cases. And the only thing that we'll all sort of be equally concerned about is is a murder, you know. <laughs> and so I think it's why crime fiction is the sort of definitive literary genre, at least in Southern California. Now, I'd like you both to talk about the writing life. Chris, you're growing up in a house that's filled with writing, filled with writers, filled with reading. Did you feel a little bit intimidated growing up? I mean, when when your mother's hand writes, that's, uh, it seems maybe a bit of a challenge. Well, I'll tell you, you need to be a good storyteller to be heard at the dinner table. I think that was really, you learn to fine-tune your storytelling abilities around the table every evening at 6 o'clock. Chris didn't even 
have to worry about that. He was <laughs> born telling stories. He was born telling stories. I mean, he would pop at the table at six years of age and start telling all kinds of unbelievable stories. Lies know? is he what they were. They were lying and, stories. And share about things that never happened. It took him a while to catch on. They, they wanted him to share about real things at school. He thought sharing was your imagination soaring. But you let's, know? let's put this in the context because this is very California. In the Bay Area, I attended a, a wonderful experimental school called Synergy, and we began every school day with sharing, which a lot of schools outside of California don't do. <laughs> but it was sort of like an early 12-step meeting for young children. <laughs> and and you're right. We were supposed to share about what we had done that weekend, and I shared about what I had fantasized I had done that weekend, and it usually involved sharks and car chases and murder and all sorts of things I had seen on television. And <laughs> I, I, I'd like you to talk about when you're bringing up a, a, a young man who obviously has this kind of imagination and writer. Writing is, you know, imagination is fine. Being able to think up new things and weird things is great. But writing is not thinking up new things. It's lashing yourself to the page mm. and finishing it. Mm. And I'd like you to talk about bringing that sense of discipline into the house without terrorizing the young man. <laughs> Well, I, I think he always saw it happening. He saw his mother in there writing books right across the hall from his bedroom was my office. And I wrote with the door open. And he'd see me go through a book, finish a book, talk about it, celebrate, eat chocolate, drink Diet Coke, celebrate the fact that the book was done. Then he would be aware of all the phases as they sent the manuscript back after copy editing and then the galleys arrived. So Chris was always seeing that. But he himself was pretty disciplined. He went through um, a long period where he was very active in student theater in high school. And I think that was a wonderful discipline, participating in plays, acting, learning the lines, giving the performance, the play must go on, you know, then striking the set, the play's over, celebrating and so forth. So he learned a lot from that experience. And he, he was a very productive, creative kid from the start. And, and actually, you know, now that I hear that, I can actually see that, hear that on the page in, in your books. And I'd like you to talk about uh, as, a, as you're growing up and starting to write, uh, how, you know, the, the influence of the theater and also just the influence of hearing the voices, you know, the voices that Anne brought and the voices your father brought, all these things that, that were in your life. Well, I think there is the influence of the theater, but I also think I have to be honest and say there's the influence of film and television, uh, particularly from the fact that I, the only formal writing training I've ever had was at NYU in their dramatic writing program. And so there is a, there is a, a tilt towards leanness and economy in my writing that was, that was um, ingrained in me in that environment, which is a little bit counter to mom's style. Um, but absolutely the voice, I think voice is that un undefinable thing or indefinable, excuse me, that makes or breaks a book for a reader. You either connect with the voice of the novel or you don't. And I think all of the other elements of a story are, are secondary to that plot, structure, character, you know, and the thing that mom had from day one was this unmistakable, inimitable voice with which she illuminated these characters that had been dismissed and marginalized, basically, as B-movie B movie, you know, conventions. And she gave them this interior life with her voice. And so I am always hoping for that 
in my books. But I have a very visual style, and I have a very dramatic style in that I would rather see it uh, expressed than told. I would rather see it acted out than told. And, th- and that's definitely what I, the, you know, the, those are the things I picked up from crime fiction, and those are the things I pick up from, from watching a lot of television and a lot of movies and examining how they tell the story. But the voice that I try to bring to it, I always hope it has the power of hers, if, if it's not exactly the same. And when you're when you started looking at Chris's work, uh, how did you see it? I mean, this must have been kind of a, on a, on one hand really proud, on the other hand maybe a little scared. Well, I always thought he was profoundly gifted <clears throat> with whatever he was doing. You know, he he would, but I didn't really see his first novel, A Density of Souls, till it was finished. I was very sick when he wrote it, and. His father read the manuscript, flipped over it, and sent it to our agents in New York. And Chris was a published novelist before I caught up with that novel, before I was well enough <laughs> to sit down and read it. And I was blown away because he not only was he um, an extraordinary writer, but he wasn't anything like me as a writer. He did something completely different. And he um, had a way of approaching his characters and his own experience that was very, very fresh and immediate, which I don't have. Everything with me is symbolically removed to a supernatural realm, and there's always a gulf of years between my experience and its appearance in the pages of a book. And he was able to write about being gay in high school right after it happened. Well, it was still sort of going on for him. I mean, he'd been out of high school a few years, but he was still kind of involved with adolescence, as most young people in our culture are, right up into their 20s. And I was just in awe of all that, you know, that he had access to all those feelings and emotions and conclusions about that experience so quickly. uh, Chris, and as your voice is coming out so different from your mother's, based both on your experience and who you are, as as a writer, did you find yourself pulling away deliberately or maybe tugging towards her? Or could you talk about, you know, the contrast that you must, the different currents you must have felt being pulled? You know, I think I I sat down to write that first book, A Density of Souls, without any really grand plan around what was going to happen with it. So there wasn't a lot of calculation about how it needed to be constructed or put together. And that was the voice that I naturally wrote in. It was a, um, I don't even really know how to describe it, contemporary conversational, um, but very much in the vein of describing a series of dramatic events that are unfolding in real time, as opposed to a narration about them that takes place at some remove. You know, a sort of filmic down there on the ground with the characters as it's happening perspective. That was how I wrote. And uh, it, it, it unfolded naturally. You know, it really did. But I have to say, if I had gone about it saying, this will be my first published novel and I need to put a lot of thought into how this is going to unfold, that question of of trying to deliberately distinguish myself from hers, her voice, excuse me, probably would have come up. But it really didn't. You know, I think people write the way they write. You know, and I think it's very hard to pull yourself in a different direction from what your natural voice is. I think there's particularly, I encounter a perception among writers who consider themselves to be literary and, and, and refined, who believe that genre writers are just faking it, you know, that, that really we all want to write in pedestrian realism and we're just manufacturing this overblown 
or uh, histrionic voice. And, and, you know, and, and I've met editor after editor who says everybody writes the way they write because that's the way they write. You know, Mary Higgins Clark writes the books that Mary Higgins Clark wants to write and, and, and enjoys. And I think what I always try to get back to was the single most valuable piece of advice mom has ever given me, which is write the book that you want to read. Which I think, and we were talking about this the other day, you got from George Lucas, which was, you know. Yeah, he, he stood up before we were shown a screening of Star Wars way back in 1977 at the American Booksellers Association. And he said, what we did here is we made the movie we wanted to see. <clears throat> and, and I never forgot that, you know. Well, it was a movie uh, that turned out to be a movie a lot of people A lot of people. Well, nobody knew at that moment that it was going to be. We were one of the earliest crowds to see Star Wars. It hadn't, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was quite amazing. Well, I, one of the things that strikes me, both your books involve really, you know, uh, frank and, and close examinations of human sexuality. And I'd like you to talk about that, you know, the how you dealt with that as mother and son and how you just dealt with that as writers. Well, there's a big push in my work, and there always has been, to say that sex is good and our physicality is good and our senses are good and we find truth when we respect ourselves as biological beings. So I don't know whether Chris inherited that living in our house. Um, He certainly didn't grow up in any sort of religious or puritanical environment. That's for sure. He grew up in a secular humanist environment, I'd say. I did. You know, it's interesting. I feel like in in, in the beginning, I was very preoccupied with sexuality and sexual identity. And, and I think with my third novel, Light Before Day, which was a very controversial book for me because it was such a shift away from the first two, I wrote my best attempt at a detective novel set in L.A. that was really about the commodification of sexuality. It was about, um, after having written about young people discovering themselves, I then began to write about older people manipulating the sexuality of others for their own personal gain, which, you know, in L.A. is a common theme. And, and it was an interesting exploration for me, and it kind of finished things off in that area for me for a while. The next two books that I wrote weren't really about sexuality. They were much more about identity in general. And, and money and class began to creep in as predominant themes. And I wrote a novel called The Moonlit Earth, which was all about... It was all about class, and sexuality was second to it. But it was, at the center of that book was a very wealthy Saudi prince who the only reason he wouldn't be open about his sexuality was because he would lose so much family money over it. And, and, and that decision determined all the other events in the, in the novel for the, for the Western main characters who became involved with him. So, you know, I think there, I was raised in that environment that Mom described of, of an openness about sexuality. We lived in the Castro district for the first 10 years of my life. Um, this was 1988, so there was a certain darkness creeping in. Sickness was coming. You know, the AIDS epidemic was upon us. But alongside that was this great uh, freedom and, and liberation. It was sort of I was I grew up as a child in the after effects of the sexual revolution. You know, they were evident everywhere. And so when we arrived in the South, I didn't necessarily have the baggage that all the other kids had, <laughs> you know, but I still struggled with my own identity. I still struggled with not wanting to be gay and, and defining myself as bisexual, even though that wasn't an accurate label for me. So that's going to be in the work, too. You know, it strikes me that both your work is 
is very sensual, but in, a, in, in very, very different ways. It's like the difference between feather dusters and razor blades. <laughs> My God. <laughs> I think you're more on the feather dusters. <laughs> and I think you're a little bit more on the, maybe this, let's say, sandpaper side. Sandpaper, yeah. yeah. So I'd like you to talk about evoking that and discovering that kind of language. Well, I consider myself... Um, a pornographer. You know, I've written I've written erotica under the name A.N. Rokolar, so I thought it was a little more than a feather duster approach to sex there. Oh, those are great books. I like those books. <laughs> Straps and buckles in the mix there. You're, you're light years ahead of this uh, Fifty Shades, though. Yeah, I think I am. Yes, I think I am. I don't know. I did set out there to write books where you did not have to mark the hot pages, where every page was hot. And in Fifty Shades, I was very disappointed that you had to mark the few pages that were hot. I didn't find it intense enough. But I don't know. I, as I said, sex is a great concern to me. Um, I've always wanted to almost proselytize for sex being good and healthy and, um, and for honoring us and honoring the wisdom of the flesh. You know, and, and I know Christopher's approach is going to have to do with his generation and his background. It's going to be different. Well, you know, there was another side to the generation I referenced earlier. You know, there was the, one of the most famous films when I was a young man was Basic Instinct, which was a very dark, um, I believe, AIDS-driven view of sexuality as predatory and menacing. Uh, when I was, when I had just graduated from high school and come out of the closet or was slowly coming out of the closet, I remember the article in the New York Times about this new class of drugs called protease inhibitors that were changing everything. So, you know, I, I came out of the closet right at the end of the darkest days of the AIDS epidemic and all the psychological scars that they left on the older gay men that I would meet once I came out of the closet. So that did influence my work. And there was a lot of uh, fear around sexuality in, during my adolescence specifically, or around homosexuality, but sexuality as well. There, we were very much taught in terms of the sex education that I was exposed to, that everybody was equally at risk. Uh, in those days, certain risks were overblown. They were, they were not informed by the science that they're informed by today. So it was a pretty scary time to be sexual. It wasn't, you know, as it had been in 1987 or 1986, you know, when I was a young boy living in the Castro district. So that, that I think, is in the work. And I think some of the this, this shifting away from that approach to sexuality that I did later was because things got better around me. You know, uh, one of the things I like about both of your latest work is the uh, use of biology and to drive these supernatural tropes. I think that I think that you do a, both do a great job about that. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, were you influenced by your mother's work in this? I, and yes. I think you did a fantastic job in, in The Heavens Rise. I was very influenced by her because I asked for notes from her on this book, and it was the first time I had ever done that. And I wanted them for that reason, because it was my first time working in a supernatural framework. And I said I wanted something as elegant and simple as an explanation for my supernatural power, which was mind control in this book, as her explanation for the vampires. My best friend and my co-host of my internet radio show, Eric Shaw Quinn, he said, look to what your mother did with the spirit Amel in the Vampire Chronicles and the explanation that all the vampires were components of that spirit and find something that is as clear and elegant as that for your book. 
And I came up with the idea of a parasite because it was interesting. As a mystery novelist, I had this idea that if I gave that if I actually explained the power, I was destroying the novel, that I couldn't give it away. And people were saying again and again and again, let us have mystery with your characters and ground the supernatural rules of your book early on. So that's what I decided to do. And talk about the the influence of the biological in your work, and and the influence of it in you know your life and bringing up uh, this wonderful young man. Oh well, I I don't know that I can separate out all those things and talk about them. But as I said, um, as I've said before, uh, I I I honor us and as as biological beings. I I grew up in early childhood in a very repressive Catholic background. And I've been sort of running from that all my life. And um, I, I trust in the senses. I trust what we are biologically. And my husband, uh, Stan Rice, in his poetry, wrote about that a lot, about being honest with yourself as a, as a physical being and seeing what was right before you. I mean, Stan told me early on that most bad metaphors were the result of a failure to observe accurately, that good metaphors were rooted in accurate observation of the physical world. And I never forgot that. That was one of the strongest lessons I ever received. I've been speaking with Anne Rice and Christopher Rice. Anne Rice's newest novel is The Wolves of Midwinter. Christopher Rice's newest novel is The Heavens Rise. Thank you for joining me, Anne and Chris. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Me. It's been great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.